Welcome to episode 11 of The Heart Chamber. I am your host, Boots Knighton. On the program today is Chris Mole. Chris underwent a heart transplant from the University of Utah. Chris and I first met each other years and years ago when working for Teton Youth and Family Services in Jackson, Wyoming. It was so great to reconnect with him again over our hearts. I'm so excited to share this episode with you. So let's get to it. Well, Chris, thanks for coming on the episode today of The Heart Chamber. Chris and I first met, gosh, at least 20 years ago when we were both working at Red Top Meadows in Wilson, Wyoming, which is a residential treatment facility for teenage boys. And since then, he has stayed in his almost his same role. And it's incredible to see all the changes that he has been a part of at Teton Youth and Family Services. So thanks, Chris, for your service there. It's an incredible organization here in the Tetons. But I brought Chris on today to talk about his incredible heart journey. He is a heart warrior and his journey is a little different than most. And so Chris, I'm going to let you just take it from here. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. So yeah, for me, it all started, I mean, in hindsight, it really started in about 2017. I noticed in the fall of that year that I noticed it particularly on a, on a fishing trip, you know, where you're hiking up and down a lot of steep hills. And I know fishing kind of sounds sedentary, but it's, it's not. This style of fishing is fairly athletic. Then I, I'd get to the top of, of some steep hills and I'd be really out of breath, like more so than usual. And it would take longer to recover. You know, that was sort of hindsight. At the time, I, you know, I sort of, you know, maybe I rationalized it or was in some denial that I was 50 now. I had maybe thrown on a little bit of weight and my kids were younger at the time. So I was busy and I wasn't exercising as much. I was like, yeah, I guess this kind of makes sense that I'm a little bit more out of shape than I'm accustomed. However, over the next three, four, five months, um, that changed pretty dramatically. It got to the point that I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs in my house without needing to sit down and take a break. I remember vividly, I couldn't walk across a parking lot. And I was like, ooh, this isn't good. So I wound up, you know, going to my, my general doctor. He did some blood work, listened to my heart, did an EKG and was like, yeah, you better go to the cardiologist, like immediately. Mm -hmm. So... Chris, did the EKGs show something at that time? Yeah, it showed I had several arrhythmias going on with my heart. Okay. Yeah, it just didn't sound right. Mm -hmm. um, so I go, I went to Bill Mullen, the local cardiologist who I think the world of, and he ordered basically an, an echocardiogram of the heart and... As it turned out, my heart was functioning at 6%. So that the echo showed that, 6%. Yeah. So that being wow. said, nobody's heart functions at 100%. Um, mm -hmm. You know, most people are at 70 to 75%. I think that's sort of in the normal range. And I was down to 6%. Did he hear a heart murmur? 
No, no murmurs. Okay. Okay. But I had some atrial fibrillation mm -hmm. and I also had, gosh, now I can't think of it. Another, it's a tachycardia. Mm -hmm. Was I'm it vent ventricular tachycardia? Ventricular. Yeah. VTAC. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And sort of plagued me throughout my stay. So really, um, I went back to a follow-up appointment and, um, Dr. Mullen was essentially like, you're about a half a step away from going to Salt Lake. So I came home and reported the findings to my wife. She immediately started plotting with Dr. Mullen and I was admitted to the hospital the following morning, which, which was, hospital? um, St. John's. Okay. Which mm -hmm. was February 17, um, 2018. And I was only admitted really for the fact so that they could prep me for a flight down to Salt Lake. Okay. Um, I remember vividly there was a really significant winter storm going on. So I, I think I spent maybe two nights St. John's and then was transported down to the University of Utah. So while you were at St. John's, what did they do for you? Not much. Basically stabilized me. Um, got me on a bunch of diuretics because my heart wasn't pumping very well. I, my body was maintaining a lot of fluids. So they were, I think, you know, at the time they were just trying to move those fluids out of me. Mm -hmm. Um, as it turned out, my kidneys weren't working great at the time either. Yeah. Isn't that interesting yeah. how the two are so dependent upon each other? They're, they're almost Absolutely. like their own, their own team. So did, um, did you run into kidney issues? Uh, surprisingly, no, surprisingly, no. Um, but I still have issues with fluid retention and have to take a diuretic off and on. It's, it's not comfortable when it builds up on you before we fly to Salt Lake with you. Yeah. Walk me through just preparing even to go to the hospital. Like even just what was it like to hear from the cardiologist, you know, that this is, this is not heading in the right direction. You know, it was, I'm not going to call it a slap in the face. You know, I think as much as I wanted to deny how serious things were, I knew in the back of my head. And it was, I think, a combination of a relief that, okay, we need to deal with this. Let's move forward because I'm not on a good track. But it was, you know, it was also pretty scary of the unknown of, you know, at that point, we really had no idea what was wrong. So even, even the cardiologist so, was like, I don't know what's wrong, but we've got to get you to Salt Lake. Absolutely. Okay. So as it turns out for about a month leading up to this, I was, I was fairly sick. I had a virus that I just couldn't seem to kick. I just felt crummy. So at the time, Dr. Mullen's theory was that the virus had attacked my heart. And that was, that's what had caused it to go into such decline, specifically over the previous month. He had had another patient who was in their mid to late thirties who had the same exact thing happen. So we're all sort of like, okay, we'll go down there. We're going to get your heart strong again. You're going to get over this virus and you'll move on. As it turns out, I think the virus is probably what put my heart into sort of an overdrive of decline, but I had, once I got down there and they're trying to figure it out, they offered to do genetic testing. So we jumped on that. And 
as it turns out that I really only later learned following my transplant that I had a genetic disorder. Mm-hmm. Wow. And okay, so let we have obviously listeners, we have a lot to unpack. He just gave away mm-hmm. the ending. <laughs> Spoiler alert, he lives, thankfully. But so, okay, you fly to Salt Lake. I've always wanted to know what is it like to be on, and I hope I never find out, what is it like to be on a, <laughs> on a medical flight from Jackson, Wyoming to yeah. Salt Lake City, Utah? Well, I've gotten to enjoy a couple of them. Oh, lucky uh-huh. you. <laughs> yeah. And I can, I'll talk about that and I'll talk about the second one in a little bit, I guess. Okay, golly. Um, It wasn't nearly as sort of exciting as I thought it was going to be. You know, basically what happens is it's a fixed wing aircraft that flies up from Salt Lake. I believe there's one based in Jackson now, but at the time there was not. Flies up from Salt Lake. So initially it couldn't get here because of winter storms. So you just wait, 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 wait. They get the word that they're taking off. It's about a 45-minute flight. Get word that they're taking off, and then basically you get packaged up in the hospital, wheeled into the back of an ambulance, and get driven up to the airport and loaded into a fixed-wing aircraft. You know, it's not so glamorous that it's like a private jet. It's a prop plane. You don't get, like, Um, warm nuts and a hot towel and a foot rub. None of that. No. Okay. No, there was no champagne, no mimosas, no nothing. And basically a nurse sits with you in the back of the plane and make sure you're comfortable. Fly your 45 minutes down to Salt Lake, get loaded into another ambulance, and then you arrive at the University of Utah. Okay. Just like that. Wow. Of course, in the back of my mind, having been through my own expensive medical endeavors, I'm like, I hope he has insurance. I hope he has insurance, which I know you do. But yes. Okay. So yeah, you get to Salt Lake. (laughs) Cha-ching, cha-ching. Get to Salt. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, you know, fortunately, the local cardiologist is good friends with the head of the team down there, Dr. Fang, um, Dr. James Fang, who Mm -hmm. I think the world of. And, you know, immediately I was greeted by, they have an entire heart failure team. It's a team of sort of rotating doctors, nurses, everybody you can imagine. It's also a teaching hospital. So there are a lot of residents there as well. You know, I'm greeted by like a team of 12 and sort of was, I was really overwhelmed. Um, And they were just basically, you know, grilling me on my entire life. And that's how it started. Okay. So it's now been, let's see if I'm doing the math right. Like, okay, you were in the hospital for two nights in in Jackson. And so now we're on day three. Maybe maybe one. I don't don't have a great memory of it. That, you know, fair enough. We'll we'll give you a pass on that. But I, I, I just know this journey is long. So, okay, we're now in Salt Lake. You're greeted by a heart failure team. That's incredible. You must yeah. have just immediately felt like you were in such great hands. But I, I just keep going back to, like I said, I, I've had the, I had the honor of knowing you, you know, years ago. Bridget, we've just recently reconnected, and you've just been this larger than life Chris Mole in my mind. And now your heart is failing you. And like you said, it was a slap in the face. It's what are you thinking now that you're in Utah and you're greeted by this huge team? You've just flown on a plane. 
Like, how were you doing mentally and emotionally at this point? Do you um, remember? I, I do remember. The way I've always kind of operated is, okay, there's a problem in front of me. Look at the problem. Let's figure it out. And how do we best get to the other side? That's the Chris so, I know. <laughs> That's what I remember about yeah, working with you. So yeah. that doesn't surprise me. So, and I, I sort of break my time up in Utah into about two-week segments, I should say, at the, ho at the hospital. Mm -hmm. And frankly, in the first 10 days to two weeks, they really couldn't figure out what was wrong with me or how to address it. If physically, I felt really tired. You know, I would, the physical therapist would come around and, you know, I'd go for walks with them up and down the hall every day, which was great, but I just felt tired all the time. So mentally I was, I was pretty good for the first few days, you know, really with the hopes of, okay, I'm, I'm with these fantastic physicians and they're going to figure out what's wrong with me and I'm going to move on. But after five, after let's call it a week or so, they really couldn't figure out what was going on or how to fix it. And then, you know, what concepts of such as, well, your heart is failing. We need to figure out how to make it work. You know, I went through a ton of tests trying to figure out if we could use some um, external medical devices to make my heart function better. and. For whatever reasons, and I don't remember the exact reasons, um, they weren't going to work for me. So at about the two-week mark, they determined that what I really needed was a heart transplant. Wow. So before we dive into that, those two weeks leading up to determining you needed a heart transplant, what test did they run while you were in the hospital? Do you oh, remember? Man, I can't remember. I can't, I mean, I remember getting a heart, an MRI of my heart, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of, um, echocardiograms, yeah. um, a lot of blood work. Yeah. And yeah, to be honest, the, ex the exact tests that they were doing are sort of a blur. Yeah, no, that's fair. Oh, okay. And then at what point did they do the genetic testing? So they did the genetic testing pretty early on. But it took, I believe it took about eight weeks for the genetic testing to actually come back. Oh, I wonder why. It always takes so long for that. So you never yeah. found out about the mutation that you later learned you had until well after. Cause uh, until when, I was discharged. Yeah. Okay. And Let's we'll see. get to the mutation in a minute. Let's go in chronological order here. So at two weeks. Yeah. They come to you and they're like, Chris, you need a heart transplant. Yep. Wow. So at that point, you know, I'm like, okay, great. And, you know, they sort okay, of lined great. out. But yeah. you, you, you just um, probably wanted to feel better. You were like, I'm going to do. I just you, wanted to feel better. You're a dad. You're a I husband. I wanted to be able to breathe. <laughs> yeah. You, you wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Basic life stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, then they lined out what that would really look like and, and what it means. You know, their protocol was once you're discharged from the hospital, you have to stay in Salt Lake City for six months. You know, you're going to have to take medication for the rest of your life. This is the protocol that you're signing on to. 
Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were some other conditions that came along with it. You know, basically for the first six months, you're not going to drink alcohol. You're not going to use illicit drugs. You're going to see a mental health therapist. You know, at this point, I'm like, I'm all in. Mm -hmm. um, let's get the process rolling. So basically, in order to, there's, my understanding is there's two different lists for transplants. One, there's one list for people that external medical devices will help their heart pump for, you know, a year or two, and they can wait a little bit longer. Then there's a list for people that are not going to make it that long. Um, you know, it was explained to me by one of the doctors that they could basically keep me alive for about two months with their medications. So the heart team then had to have a big meeting to see if they actually wanted to put me on this, basically on, on the immediate list, which fortunately the team voted to put me on that. So once wow. that vote occurred, yeah. I'm just like picturing yeah. a whole bunch of white coats in a room being like raising their hand. Hey, does he, does he get to, does he get to live basically? I know. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I almost didn't want to say that, but yes. <laughs> that, yeah. I mean, that's the grim reality of it. And I mean, I could, I probably shouldn't, but I could talk about that process for a little while. We can talk, we but can make this so as detailed as you want, Chris, like as much as you want to share. I mean, the listeners who are. No, I probably don't want to talk about it because it, okay. it could be offensive. Um, okay. Okay. Because I've. I have some, I have some strong opinions about it that okay. I don't particularly want to share in a public forum. So once I, once they voted to put me on the list, then essentially I had to go through lots of medical testing to make sure that I was otherwise healthy enough to maximize the generous donation of a heart. Colonoscopy, every cancer test you can imagine. Yeah, I mean, you know. So you're still in the, the hospital. The, the protocol for the testing. Yeah, yeah you're still so in the hospital. Now we're and sort the, of entering. Sorry, I interrupted you. But like, I just oh, picture yeah. you with a so, schedule of like all these tests each day just to like get you ready. Just to get me so I can actually go on the list. And, you know, once we got through all those tests, which was over a period of a few days, I passed. And... I wound up on the transplant list. Um, and that sort of enters what I call the, the middle two weeks, the middle third of my hospital stay. So I was on the transplant list for about, I think it was almost exactly two weeks. And that was difficult. It was a relief that I was on the list and it really sort of gave me something to look forward to. But then I got impatient. And I think one of the physically, like I was sort of getting excited, you know, like I was doing, I was going for a lot of walks around the hospital and starting to actually feel a little bit stronger, even though my heart was basically the same, but I had sort of come out of that tired period of just needing to rest. Mm -hmm. And I was feeling motivated and sort of in the back of my mind, I was thinking, okay, well, the stronger I can be going into this probably the better off I'll be on the other end. And I know, you know, for me, sort of being athletic has been what I do my whole life. 
so it's, it was sort of a big mental shift of like, okay, well, I'm going for 10 minute walks and that's going to help me on the other side, but sure, I'll, I'll do what it takes. It's what I can do right now. Right. But then, you know, so after about a week goes by and I, I was starting to get impatient and I, and I shouldn't be, you know, and I remember, I remember thinking, you know, I'd look out the window of my, my hospital room and it's snowing out and you would have these sort of dark thoughts of, well, it's snowing out. Maybe somebody will get in a car crash tonight and I'll get a heart. And it was like, what the F are you thinking? Like you're wishing ill on other people. Hey, and it, you know, it's just terrible thinking. And I remember vividly talking to one of the nurses about, it. I was like, I need to talk to somebody about this. Is this normal? And they're like, oddly enough, this is completely normal because your survival instinct is so strong. But I didn't like thinking that way. It really bothered me. I mean, I, there wasn't much I could do about it, obviously. But mm -hmm. while you're, you know, sitting around basically waiting for an organ to save your own life, there has to be tragedy on somebody else's side. And that, that was really hard for me to digest. Um, you know, do I deserve this? Um, and that was hard. That was a really hard emotional part of it. I can only imagine. Yeah, I'm just, it makes sense that you would think all of that. I mean, yeah, you so desperately want to live, yet you know it hinges on a death. And that is the ultimate in dialectic thinking. Yeah, it really is. Um, I can't but, think of anything more intense than that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you basically don't have a lot of outlets to sort of emotionally process that because you're just laying in a hospital bed. You know, typically for me, exercise is a place where I can work out a lot of my thoughts and being active. And it, it sort of, it helps sort of maybe compartmentalize isn't the right phrase. It's always helped me sort things out. Like even when I was in grad school and had a difficult paper to write, I could think most clearly when I was being active. So now the fact that I'm just being sedentary really allowed my place, my brain to go places that I didn't like a whole lot. Yeah, it doesn't sound comfortable at all. While you're also waiting, you have a wife, a family, your brother. What did they do? Were they just kind of taking turns coming down? And just for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with our area, where Chris was compared to his house is about a five-hour drive, give or take, with winter weather. Yeah. So. In the in the winter. In the winter, right. And we were just a very tight-knit community. Chris has been around for a long time. He's beloved in the community. So help me understand your, before we get to the transplant piece, help me understand your support network. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, this had to be hard on them. Really, really hard. So yeah, if we think back to when I first got to Utah. And the timing was really sort of uncanny. My wife's parents were actually en route to Seattle to visit my brother-in-law and his family. Ironically, my brother-in-law is a cardiologist, a top-notch cardiologist at the University of Washington. So I'm getting ready to go to the hospital. My wife calls her parents, realizing that she's going to need some help. They 
were actually in Salt Lake City en route to Seattle. <laughs> and they were able to change their flight on the spot and were able to come to Jackson to help with the kids. At the time, let's see, my kids were in fifth and seventh grade. So they weren't really capable of being independent. So their grandparents were super helpful during that initial phase. Wow. Um, once so we fortunate. realized, yeah, once we realized this was not going to be a couple day visit to the University of Utah Hospital, we sort of started making alternate plans. You know, my wife has a, she works for herself as an attorney, but she still had work to do. My kids had school. So it sort of became this, I think exactly like you said, a rotation. Um, I'm lucky enough that my brother lives here um, and we're unbelievably close that they would sort of take turns coming down. We were trying to, as hard as it was for the kids, let's keep them in school. Let's keep them in the sports that they're doing because it's a really good distraction. So yeah, it became this rotation of people coming down, my brother, my wife, the kids would come down on weekends, friends would come down, maybe friends would give the kids a ride home, they could stay with some friends, and that's sort of how it worked. Sounds like over the Jackson community. First, <laughs> yeah, over that first four weeks that I was in the hospital. And the community was incredible, and you know, I, good friends would come down and see me, and yeah, so that's how it worked. It, it really took a lot of help from a lot of friends and, and everybody was just incredible to us. I'm really glad to hear that. And I'm also, like I just said, I'm not surprised. I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. So, okay. So you're getting, you're getting, let's go back to the hospital. You're, you're impatient. You're, you're having uncomfortable thoughts, which sound completely normal. Your body is in a survival instinct and and you're just waiting you're in the waiting game yep and then you get the news yeah so that sort of concludes that second two-week period that i was in the hospital you know much of my hospital stay is is sort of a blur which yeah it, it was a blur for whatever reason but i vividly recall you know every morning the the team would make rounds, the medical team. And they walked in, I believe it was Saturday, March 17th. And they walked in that morning and they said they had a new heart for me and that I would be having a transplant that evening. I'm like, fantastic. <laughs> However, it gets a slightly more logistically complicated. This was uh, one of the rotations where I think my brother was down in Salt Lake at the time and my wife was at home and she was actually staying with, she was staying over with some friends in Victor because my youngest daughter had qualified the regional championships in ski racing, which was taking place that weekend, which we obviously, we wanted her to ski in because mm -hmm. she worked really hard to qualify for that. So she had her. You know, we call my wife and she's like, what? You're getting a heart tonight? Yep. It, yep. It's real. It's happening. So she had to run up to Grand Targhee and pick up my daughter who, funny enough, she was disappointed that she couldn't race. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, what was her age? Well, she was in, um, 
she was in fifth grade. Fifth grade. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. age appropriate, oh. right? Like, a hundred percent. myopic at that age. And, <laughs> and, you know, after the fact, she was also really able to talk about how much she hated seeing me in the hospital, which, and I get she, to this day, she loves ski racing and that's what she does. She's a ski racer and she wanted to ski in this race, but nonetheless, she didn't ski in the race. And yeah, I remember my in-laws came, my brother-in-law flew in from Seattle and yeah, you know, chronologically, they said, you know, we're, we're going to do the surgery this evening. And I remember sort of about three o'clock in the afternoon, I was like, all right, I've thought about this enough now. Like, maybe you should have told me about an hour before, because <laughs> now I want this to happen, like, immediately. Like, I'm tired of sitting around and waiting. Let's mm-hmm. do this. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, I... Chris, if I can interrupt, what, my, what were you thinking yeah. about, like, what? During when you just said, I've thought about this enough. I mean, I read into that. Maybe your, your, your mind was going in a lot of different directions. I mean, what is it like knowing it's about to happen? Well, so, right. There's going to be, there's a possibility of a couple outcomes. One being things head terribly south and you don't make it through the surgery. So there was sort of that, but at the time... Um, you know, of course I thought about that, but I sort of concluded that, well, that's sort of out of my hands. That's probably not really constructive for me to focus on that. For me, the focus then became, what am I going to do? What are my goals? And what am I going to do when I start to recover from this surgery? Which for me is a much more helpful way to think. So it would be great if you could really control how your mind works, but you can't as much as we might try. Our mind is our mind. Um, so sure. You know, I definitely had those thoughts of like, well, if I expire tonight, then that's what happens. Like I can't do that. To me, it was much more helpful to look forward and what I'm going to do with this incredible gift. Well, Chris, if I may, I also think, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you just naturally tend towards the positive anyway. Like that's just a skill set you have. I try. And Um, I'm just thinking about the listeners here. Not everyone has that skill set and that's okay. You know, it's something you can always strive for. But I just want to normalize for anyone listening that is facing the same situation or any heart surgery. It's it's normal to have like the range of thoughts, but I can't agree more, Chris, that the more you can focus on afterwards, it's just such powerful medicine that can't be put in a bottle. It can't be written on a script. I agree. And, you know, perhaps a little bit of the backstory to that, the treatment center that we worked at and in my work as a licensed therapist, one of our focuses on the kids that we treated was to be strength-based. Let's focus on what a kid is doing well versus what are the behaviors and what is the thinking patterns that they're not doing well. Because Mm -hmm. I think in life, it's much easier to build upon things that we do well versus the things that we struggle with. Mm -hmm. 
if we focus on what we do well, that can hopefully roll into our struggles and be able to reframe the struggles in it from a different perspective. So that's all my training in basically my, my career since I've been, you know, 21, 22 years old has always been strength-based. So I don't know, you know, I think back to maybe before, was I always strength-based? I have no idea. Um, but I think I embraced the ideals of the program that we worked at, which is really strength-based. Mm-hmm. So to me, that was sort of natural shit of, I can look back on the past, but I'm, I can't change anything about the past. I can learn from it. And how am I going to apply that moving forward? Which, as I just said, for me, thinking about how I'm going to move forward post-transplant was much more helpful thinking and, and was much better for my own mental health. So wise. And I mean, when I went through my heart surgery, I would have loved to have heard those words prior. So helpful from, yeah, another heart friend. And just real quickly, when I went into my heart surgery, I slightly different but similar approach. I pictured the the surgeon and the nurses and the helpers in the room all having a really good day. And I'm not religious, but I I'm spiritual, I believe in, you know, yeah. higher beings. And I just pictured the room filled with helper guides and angels. And I started focusing also, what could I do afterwards once I got the remodel of my heart? I call it the heart remodel. <laughs> yeah, I like that. But yeah, it, it, it's normal to have a both, though. I did wonder what, you know, if I did did not wake up, was I happy with how my life went? And the only two regrets I had was I hadn't skied enough and I hadn't published my book. Yeah. (laughs) I was at peace with everything else. Well, it's funny you talk about skiing because I vividly remember getting wheeled in to the operating room. And I think it was the anesthesiologist. You know, we're just sort of waiting. I'm laying there waiting for things to happen. And I strike up a conversation. Turns out the anesthesiologist lived up in Park City and he was a huge skier. So, you know, we're talking about powder skiing and mountain biking and how great the trails are up in Park City. And it it sort of took the edge off because, of course, there's anxiety. You know, anytime I think you're going to go under general anesthesia, there's a little bit of anxiety sort of about what's going to happen with that. But not to mention, I was going to get an entirely new organ. This is just such a trip. But I yeah, so I remember, you know, just sort of going into it and just sort of having an, a little bit of an easier feeling talking with this man about things that we both loved. And he was like, okay, this guy's on my team. He knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then it was probably lights out. Yeah. yeah then it was lights out. <laughs> For how um, long? How long was the they, surgery? They said the surgery was about six hours, which of course I know nothing about. Mm-hmm. Thankfully. In hindsight, I, you know, I was talking to my wife and my family. I'm like, well, what did you guys do during the six hours? And they were like, well, they told us there's nothing we can do here. And we should probably just go do something to try and, you know, get a little sidetrack. So they went back to the hotel and went swimming and took a hot tub and had a nice dinner. I mean, I suppose it was probably around midnight or 1 a.m. by the time my surgery was complete. And then, you know, I, oddly enough, what the, allegedly they had me up walking after surgery, obviously with 
a lot of assistance. And at some point over the next couple of days, um, the one thing I can vividly remember is Dr. Maura Lafaro was down seeing, she's a local OB, good friends of ours. And she was down there and seeing me. And this is my first memory. Um, she's like videoing me walking. And she says, Chris, say something. Yeah, I'm sure I'm all groggy. And I was just, and I just responded, something. That was my response. And that, <laughs> and that is like the first thing I remember. So you don't remember waking up? No. Okay. I know I was intubated for a couple of days and they had me, I had a morphine pump. And I remember one point being like, well, if I'm going to be compromised and I'm on morphine, I'm going to enjoy this somehow. I think I asked my wife to put my headphones on, the ones that I'm wearing now, because some friends of mine brought these to me in the hospital so I could listen to music. I said, put my headphones on and put some 1977 Grateful Dead on. And then I remember hitting <laughs> the morphine pump and just going to outer space. That is sort of um toll, which I'm not surprised about this. I was not a good patient when I was intubated. Probably not a good patient to begin with. But apparently I really did not like being intubated. And they just got to the point that they were tired of wrestling me. And they were like, all right, let's just rip this thing out. And they called it a rodeo extubation. They're like, this isn't going to go smooth, but it's going to be better in a minute. And they just basically held me down and ripped the thing out of my throat. The intubation was the worst part for <laughs> me. And I, w I remember waking up and I was intubated and they had my hands tied to the <clears throat> railings. And I, w yeah. I, I immediately had a reaction to the anesthesia and I knew I was going to throw up, but I had this mm. thing and yeah. I, I couldn't say anything, but I was so terrified I was going to asphyxiate on the vomit. And so I just kept flipping off my surgeon, my nurses, my <laughs> husband, because it was the yeah. only way I knew how to communicate. And they just thought I was being a jerk, but I was like, no, I was what trying you? to tell you something was wrong. And I just you, knew. You're like, I have, I have <laughs> issues here. <laughs> the moment they took it out, I just, yeah, it just went everywhere. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. So you're, so now they've, they've taken it out, the tube out, <laughs> but you're likely probably still on morphine, but, and walking, yeah, <laughs> you're saying it's something. All a something. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, Chris. So that, I didn't, you know, that I lost, I lost a few days, you know, I have, I have no idea sort of what transpires. That makes sense. And, but, you know, and, but I remember you were on the heart and lung machine too, yeah, and the anesthesia and that affects your memory, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I'm sure they sedated the shit out of me while I was intubated because I know I, I did not handle that well, just knowing my personality and sort of my anti-authoritarian attitude. <laughs> I, I can only imagine I was a handful. <laughs> but sort of I remember the first thing I really thought sort of coming out of that haze was that I can breathe. And sort of what a relief that was that I wasn't struggling to breathe or feeling like I was going to pass out because wow. I couldn't get a good breath. You knew immediately. I knew immediately. Wow. And then, you know, sort of the next week, yeah, I remember walking a bunch and I'm still in the ICU at this point, 
but they took me outside. It was, I remember it was sort of a warm, sunny day. And I was like, is there any way you guys can take me outside? I would really like that. When they loaded me up with piles of blankets and a wheelchair and took me outside for a while. And that, that was incredible. You know, and at this point, my kidneys were still not doing terrific. So they got me on some dialysis, which really got the fluid um, out of me in a hurry. One of my sort of vivid memories is the dialysis machine sort of stopped working. And there was a, there, there was a lot of hustle going on. And I'm just sort of laying there clueless. And, you know, my wife is there sort of eyeballing everything. She's like, yeah, that was the only time they really moved quickly during your care is when the dialysis machine stopped working. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I've heard about dialysis and if the kidneys aren't working, it can also, from what I've heard and correct me if I'm wrong, it can also kind of mm. cloud your memory and your thinking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then I remember I got off dialysis and for whatever reason, at this point, food did not taste good to me. Like any sort of like turkey sandwich, like it just tasted like absolute garbage. But the one thing I really did eat a lot of was fruit. Fruit and yogurt tasted great to me. But at this, you know, now we're, you know, call it a week out. They're like, you need to start eating or you're getting a feeding tube. So I essentially started force feeding myself. Uh, like, I don't want to, I don't want a feeding tube. Mm -hmm. I want less. Mm -hmm. I want less inside of me. Another great memory I had, um, is I was still in the ICU. I was sort of at the point where they wanted me to get out of the ICU, but they didn't have a bed available. I think it was on the fourth floor. It was still cardiac care, but it was not ICU. And I was like, you know, can I go outside for another breath of fresh air? And they sent like this young nurse in. I'm not sure if he knew any better, but he was like, all right, dude, get dressed. We're going outside. And instead of a wheelchair, he walked me outside, like down several flights of stairs. And I was like, this is cool. I feel like I'm making progress here. I stood outside for a little while till I got cold. And then coming back inside and having to walk up let's call it two flights of stairs, two, two floors. It sort of hit me. I was like, Ooh, this recovery is going to be brutal. <laughs> I was dragging my butt up those stairs. It was like, okay, but I made it. I can do this. But it was sort of like, you're starting from scratch. It was a, a real reminder that like, you got some work to do here. Well, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, <laughs> But how many weeks now had it been since you had really used your legs for more than just a walk down the yeah. hallway? Other than walking around the hallways, it had been a while, <laughs> you know, and at this point it's, you know, let's call it roughly five, five and a half weeks in the hospital. And like you said, you hadn't been able to breathe very well. I'm not a doctor here, but if your heart wasn't working, if, if you know, it was only 6%. Your lungs probably had to go through a whole new learning. Well, first of all, it's working with a new teammate, yeah. right? It's got a new team member. Exactly. So your body is like trying to get to know your new heart. And plus, you know, the whole use it or lose it thing, your legs probably were just atrophied. Oh my gosh, yep. that's just a lot. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, like, you know, this is, you know, a lot of my life before that was skiing the backcountry, you know, being able to ski between six, eight thousand, ten thousand feet a day. And then all of a sudden that 10,000 feet is climbing two sets of stairs. Mm-hmm. You know, it, my body had sort of that similar reaction to being that tired. And I was like, holy crap, I need a nap. <laughs> that was exhausting. Mm-hmm. You know, and then sort of chronologically, I finally got out of the uh, cardiac ICU and into the regular ward. I really didn't like being in the ICU. Basically, your feet were not allowed to touch the floor unless there was a nurse there to assist you. You know, so if you let your mind wander a little bit, any sort of humility that I had with my body and body functions was completely gone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I didn't care at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, So being able to move into a room where I could get up and walk around on my own and not have to call the nurses, could take a shower, that was a huge step forward for me emotionally. Well, you had um, autonomy again. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, I'm a fiercely independent person. Mm-hmm. So having that autonomy for me, just to be able to get out of the bed and go sit on the couch, because that's what I felt like doing, what felt wildly successful. And it's an important step because you have to be able to do that at home. There's all these steps that yeah. while in the hospital, you have to be able to prove you can do all these different things so they can let you go. Yeah, Exactly. And then I remember, so I was sort of, I was in that ward for a few days and one of the younger doctors came in. I was like, listen, I'm re- I need to get out of the hospital. Can we make a plan for me going home? And I probably pushed a little bit and he was like, I fully support that. And I went home that day. Now, when you say home. They just, dis- the, well, they discharged me. Right. You didn't go to Jackson Um, because you had to stay close. (laughs) No. Yeah. So, which sort of triggered off another rodeo. Uh, My wife knew it was coming and she knew we had to stay down there. And my wife and kids were staying in a hotel. And within hours, she found us a place to live for a couple weeks, which was amazing. And once we I was able to be discharged and get to this spot. We had to figure out more of a permanent solution. And then what are we going to do with the kids at that point? My kids said they wanted to move down to Salt Lake so we can all be together and that they would finish out the school year down there, which they did. And yeah. That's incredible that your kids were willing to do that. I mean, it's such formative times in their lives. That's so impactful. Yeah. And yeah, so at the time, um, now we moved into soccer season. My youngest daughter didn't want to miss soccer games with her team. So then, you know, my wife is just incredible. Lined it up so that she could practice with a team down in Salt Lake. And then, and for people who don't know the geography, ours, we don't really have any quote unquote home soccer games. The closest we would travel for our games in Jackson is two and a half hours, like down to Pocatello, Idaho. We play in Boise and Salt Lake. So we were able to work it that she never missed a game with her team. Wow. So she practiced again, in Salt Lake, but we, played for the Jackson team. Yep. That's incredible. Um, again, lots of help from friends. We'd, if they were playing in Boise, 
friends would, my wife would take her up to Pocatello, which is about halfway. They'd meet in Boise and then do that again at the end of the weekend. Mm -hmm. Or we'd get her a one-way flight to Boise. I'm lucky enough to have a good friend that lives in Boise and he would pick her up at the airport and then get her to the soccer games. So just trying as hard as possible to keep our lives as normal as, as possible for the kids while I was recovering from my transplant. And then sort of once the school year ended, so they were really down there for about a quarter. And at this point, you know, see, I was getting stronger. I, my mental functioning was coming back. Once the summer hit, my wife and kids really started going back to Jackson more and more full time. Mm -hmm. I was like, listen, I'm fine. You guys don't need to be down here. Go back, go home. But they would, you know, still come back and forth. And, um, you know, I had agreed that I was going to stay in Salt Lake for six months, which I did. I maybe snuck a couple trips in home. We won't tell. I would. <laughs> no. <laughs> but nonetheless, I was I was pretty good. Well, I was just going to ask, what was that six months like for you? What did that entail? As far um, as like deal, you know, I'm I'm suspecting blood work and more testing and cardiac rehab. Yeah. So, well, there were a couple pieces of it. One. So initially, I think it started for the first month. It was every week. Um, I would go. In, I would go and have a cardiac catheterization where they would go in through my neck and in down the artery. They would. They were actually able to go in and take little snippets of my new heart and do biopsies on it to see if I was demonstrating any signs of rejection. So I think for the first month, that was every week. Then after that, I think it went to every two weeks for the next month. And then it went to once a month and then every other month, all the way out to every six months. And now it's once a year. And then, yeah, it was blood work every week. And I think pretty quickly I started with cardiac rehab as well. What was that like getting that started? Oh, I remember the first sort of where they were establishing a baseline, you know, sort of in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to show these bitches what's up. And <laughs> I just, you and know, said they showed you what's up. I, it was just an, <laughs> it was an absolute beat down. <laughs> you were thinking you were bringing your A yeah. game, but it was more like your Z game. <laughs> yeah i'm not even sure i brought a game <laughs> i think i went to 30 sessions but by the end i was apparently i had set the record for the most recovery from I'm, my baseline that does not surprise me <laughs> i was pretty motivated the other thing which i like to talk about so i couldn't once i was discharged i couldn't drive for six weeks basically because they needed my sternum to heal up in case I was in like a head on car crash. Uh, it would be bad if I broke my sternum, obviously. Mm -hmm. So I remember going to the doctors at about six months and, or not six, at about six weeks post transplant. And I was like, you know, what do I have to do to get clearance to drive? And they're like, well, you, a surgeon needs to see you. I said, okay, well get one in here. Cause I'm ready to start driving. I'm ready for some independence here. So miraculously there happened to be a surgeon around and he came in and he sort of thumped on my chest a bit. And he's like, I think you're good. I'm like, okay, I'm good. 
was like, what do you think about me riding a bike? And he was like, I don't see why not. You know, as long as you're careful, that sounds good to me. So I took that as I can go mountain biking, <laughs> which I, which I did. So yeah, I was riding a mountain bike six weeks after my transplant. I tried to be smart about it. I went out and bought like one of those big downhill, like, like the people wear for downhill mountain biking, like a big chest protector and I had all sorts of pads. And I checked in, I knew that if I talked to my team at the University of Utah, that idea was going to be quickly shot down. So I didn't really want to run it by them. I ran it by my brother-in-law and he was like, you know, I don't think that's a bad idea. He's like, you need to be careful. And he's like, I'd recommend keeping your heart rate. I think it was under 130. So I equipped myself with two heart rate monitors, all this padding. And I went mountain biking. I'm, I vividly remember the ride. Um, I, you know, I took it super slow and cautious on any sort of downhill. And I remember having to stop a lot to keep my heart rate under 130, which is just fine. But I made it about a mile and a half and I was just wiped. <laughs> but you made it a mile and, and a half. That's incredible. But I made it a mile and a half. <laughs> And I remember that being like, okay, I'm going to get through this. I can do this. It's like, I need to do this for my mental health, basically. I'm also just hearing hope, um, right? Like, because I'm just, hope. I'm just exactly. reflecting back to like when you initially flew down there and all the testing and they didn't know what was wrong. And then, the, and then they're like, so you need a new heart. So then you're waiting for it. And then now six weeks post transplant. You are mountain biking and you made it a mile and a half after your old yeah. heart was only at 6%. This is incredible, yeah. Chris. Yeah. Um, and, you know, another sort of part that I wanted to touch on, um, my mental health was sort of up and down there as, during this time. And I was doing some pretty extensive therapists or pretty extensive therapy with a guy that I got hooked up with down in Salt Lake, who was pretty incredible because, you know, all this wasn't smooth for me from sort of a thinking standpoint. There glaringly, like I remember at some point I had mentioned that I'm a fiercely independent person, but at some point, like this whole process to me, I, I really started to feel like a prisoner that everybody was watching my every move and and judging me and people that would come down and visit her, like mothering me and overprotecting me. I'm like, everybody can just get the F out of my grill. You know, I, I'm still very appreciative of everything that I was doing. But at this point after, you know, essentially two months of just being hovered over left and right, I needed some space. Mm -hmm. And I remember vividly, my therapist was like, and I was like, I need to talk about this with my therapist because I was, I was not being nice to people. I was struggling emotionally. And he's like, you know, I think you're really suffering from some medical trauma. And in all my training and in my work and my life, I had never really thought about medical trauma. I was associated with sexual assault, physical abuse, things like that. And I had never really considered applying medical trauma to my own life. And I remember we did, he, you know, I remember him asking, are you open to doing some EMDR to think about this? And EMDR is eye movement 
um, desensitization reprocessing, which is a really effective form of trauma treatment. And I remember after that one session, my whole entire perspective changed. Hmm. And it was incredibly uplifting. I, I sort of, because I sort of fell into that victim role, essentially. And it didn't, it wasn't sitting well with me. And I'm so glad that I was able to bring it up with my therapist and that we continue to work through that. And that was a really pivotal moment in, in my recovery. Because I think oftentimes, you know, you think about, you know, whether it was your heart issue or a transplant or what, whatever medical condition people might be going through. I think the big thing that people focus on is really the physical recovery from it. And we don't pay enough attention to the mental health aspect of the recovery and, and sort of what that experience does to your overall being. And that was a huge moment for me. I'm so glad you went there with that, Chris. Thank you. And, you know, I, in episode five, I interviewed Cassie Fuller, which is my physical therapist. And we talk a lot mm. about the mental health aspects of heart surgery. And we talk about EMDR. I am a huge fan of EMDR. And it's what mm. has kept me sane through all of my heart struggles. So how many EMDR sessions have you done? I probably done really only seven or eight mm -hmm. in, at least for me it happened pretty fast and you know i think was sort of what 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 your lead-in question was what was that six months like so sort of overall i think all with the exception of about month five to six because at that point i was over it mm -hmm. um i was ready to go home it was really a a good thing for me because I was able to establish new lifestyle patterns sort of without being in my old stomping grounds of Jackson, that I was able to put myself on a healthier trajectory, sort of, and not that there's pressures, but I think you feel sort of pressures, whether they're real or not. But I was able to sort of establish that new lifestyle for myself before returning back to my home community, mm -hmm. which... In, you know, in talking to the, the medical team, they've since changed that protocol that now you really only have to stay down there three months. I, in hindsight, I was really thankful that it was six because I think it was better for me overall. That's a powerful reflection. You mentioned the genetic during testing. The, during that time. It, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. No, you go first. You I was going to say during, during that time, as I was getting stronger and stronger, I was going up to Park City and mountain biking all the time. You know, kind of while I was enjoying what I was doing, there was also an element of frustration that I wasn't getting stronger faster, which I know is sort of that type two mindset of, I have to be better. I have to be better. And every once in a while, then you're able to take a step back and be like, okay, this is where I came from. This is where I'm at. I'm doing pretty good. Mm -hmm. I should just be happy that I'm out riding my bike. Right. Okay, you're up to five and a half, six miles. This is great. That radical acceptance piece that seemed you have to exercise every day of like, okay, so I had to have this heart transplant. This is where I'm at. I, did you find that that was like this constant conversation of reminding yourself where you had come from? Yes, but, you know, it was sort of like that. There's a scene in the movie Animal House where 
on one shoulder, he's, he's got the angel talking and the other shoulder, he's got the devil talking. That was my frequent conversation of, okay, look where you started. You're making progress. Then the devil's like, you should be better. Why aren't you stronger? Get stronger. Try harder. I should use. It sounds it like sort of that a, internal battle. The ego versus <laughs> the new heart. A hundred percent. Yes. Get You're stronger. To the choir get faster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, like that's five years later now. It's something I still struggle with. And it, it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm 55. Like I still want to, I should still be performing like I'm 30 in my head. Yeah. <laughs> um, but wow. that's, that's my internal dialogue. Yeah. Well, and I struggle <laughs> with that too. And like I said, in episode five, Cassie and I talk a lot about that and the mountain town perspective versus what's best for the heart. You know, the expectations yeah. of our friends and, but mostly our ego versus what the heart needs. Yeah. Well, and, and that's really what I've found because, you know, even after returning home, I had a reluctance to go mountain biking with people or go backcountry skiing with people because I couldn't accept for the, myself that it's not okay to be the slowest person in the group. When the reality is my friends, my wife just want to do something with me. They don't give a shit how fast you go. They just want to go out and do something. It's completely the internal struggle. Right. No, nobody else cares. It's, it's all in my head. They're just glad you're and alive. I know that. Yeah. And, and they, they thriving. They just want to go do something with me. I mean, the fact that you. Which I'm grateful for. I would dare say you're thrive, you were thriving relatively quickly. Would you agree with that? Is that an external definition of thriving or internal? Ah. <laughs> That's, you know, externally, you probably perceive that way. I per internally, I'm perceiving, it didn't yes. feel that way. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. But that's the conflict, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have two more burning questions. Number one mm -hmm. is the gene mutation. So before the heart transplant, you did the genetic testing. It was going to take eight weeks. So what did you learn? Mm -hmm. So I learned that I have this condition, condition called FLNC. And I don't really know what the acronym stands for. Um, I call it Florida, North Carolina. Um, that works. It was discovered relatively recently um, within about the last decade. So subsequently, and, and again, this is in hindsight and a little bit of guessing, I'm pretty sure that's what killed my, my dad. He had very similar symptoms to what I experienced, but they didn't know what it was. So subsequently, we had my kids tested. My brother got tested. My brother has the gene, um, as well as one of my kids. Inter interestingly, um, so my brother goes down to, he's now a patient at the University of Utah. He gets an MRI once a year and they look at his heart function and how he's doing. It's one of those things where you can't really treat the condition, but you can treat the symptoms if you know about it. My brother's doing fine. My, one of my daughters goes down and sees them. She was going annually. They basically said, you're, you're coming a little too frequently. Let's see you about every three years. So interestingly, the, basically the people who discovered it, this gene, this mutation 
and who are considered to be the leading experts are down at the University of Colorado Medical School in Denver. Um, my brother actually just went for an appointment with the lead doctor down there, and she said there are only 350 people in the world who are registered to have this gene. So it's a super small cross-section of the entire population. I always knew you moles were special. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're super unique. <laughs> yeah, but I don't have the gene anymore. Mine is gone. True. Yeah. Oh, the the. So I have that dark go. humor that so comes that from this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but your brother's holding stable. Your daughter is looking good, and it's just a matter of yeah. of just knowledge is power and monitoring. Precisely. Okay. Now this heart of yours. This, this new to you heart, do you know the person it came from? Do you know the name um, of the person or the family or? I don't know the name of the person. I actually, I did at one point when I was well enough, you know, because everything is incredibly anonymous. We basically wrote a thank you letter, which then gets forwarded on to, hmm, I can't remember the exact name. Um, but it's through the Inner Mountain Hospital down in Salt Lake. They run the organ sort of donation program in our region. And they sent the letter on. And, you know, they act as the middle person because it's highly confidential on both ends. But eventually we had contact with the donor's mother. We sort of corresponded back and forth. Um, I do not know what happened to the person but it turned out it was about a 32-year-old male from Idaho Falls. And we were sort of communicating back and forth. She really wanted to meet, which I was happy to do. But then she had a number of events happen. Her, her husband died. She was sick. I think she eventually died. And at that point, correspondence just sort of stopped before we could meet. You know, and... Given the technology today, I could probably figure out what happened to this young man, but I just haven't really had the desire to do that. I don't really need to know the circumstances. Maybe one day I'll feel like I need to, but for the time being, I, I don't really know the circumstances of, of his passing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds like that's a very personal choice because there's just so much other medical trauma that you are processing and it's like you almost have to also process the donor's medical trauma too if you're going to choose to Absolutely. know the story and so like hey let's just stick with my own i've got enough trauma to deal with i'm going to just remain grateful thank you maybe if i choose to in the future if i can if i have the bandwidth to handle that other medical trauma then you will right like that's that's what i hear and think that's just a lot to process yeah. And, you know, really my, I mean, we all sort of have this curious nature, but what I sort of boiled down to, I was like, is that information that I really need? Yeah. Um, does it help is you? Is that just sort of, does it help me in any way? Does it help the victim or their family in any way? I sort of boiled down to at the time that it wasn't really something that I needed to know. Yeah. I didn't see how it was beneficial except for it was perhaps more to perseverate on. Well, and I also go back to the 
strength-based skill set that you were sharing earlier in our conversation, I think this goes along with it. It's like you have the wisdom to know that that's just not going to help your journey. It's not It's not in any yeah. way informing you to take a step forward. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, it's been five years. You just celebrated five years. You've had a lot of time to reflect. Well, it's coming up. Yeah. Okay. March 17th. March 17th, right. So with that- The luck of the Irish. It is, yes. Which I'm not. <laughs> which I'm not Irish at all. Me neither. Um, <laughs> glad we got that established. That was very important. Yeah. <laughs> now that it's almost at the five-year mark, like where are you landing now physically, mentally, and emotionally? Yeah, that's sort of an interesting question. You know, initially, I used to think about my heart all the time. I had, for the first year and a half, there were some struggles. Some of the medication didn't agree with my body and was causing my white blood cell counts to plummet. I got the flu, which landed me in the hospital and my second airplane ride to Salt Lake City. But once we sort of got that all sorted out, um, my medications have been incredibly stable over the last, let's call it three and a half years. There really haven't been any changes to my medications. I take them twice a day. I take two different anti-rejection meds and then some supplements and some meds that your average 55-year-old man wouldn't be that different from being on a blood pressure medication, a cholesterol medication. And then I take some supplements like calcium and magnesium. And other than that, like, I feel really fortunate, like my medications aren't that bad. You know, some of my friends ask, well, isn't, you know, a huge pain in the ass to take those meds twice a day? I'm like, no, no, it's really not compared to the alternative. <laughs> no, I take them at 9.30 and 9.30. It's easy. No problem. So I used to think about my heart all the time. Now I don't think about it much at all. And it's sort of crossed that hurdle where, okay, this is, this is what I got. It seems to be working just fine. And... It's not to say that I don't think about it. I, you know, I frequently think about how lucky I am and how fortunate I am that I was able to receive a new heart. Physically, I'm still making progress. I sort of gauge it, um, sort of my winter time trial, if you will, is um, skinning up Snow King. I like to time it, my, and I also gauge it, you know, when I really started going up Snow King again, you know, I guess four years ago, how frequently I had to stop and take a break going for time. I'm not gauging my efforts by how frequently I have to stop, gauging it by how quickly I'm getting to the top. And because I, I'm a really competitive person by nature, and I don't like that side of myself very much. So I, I do everything I can to sort of keep that stamp down. But I frequently am asking my wife how fast she's getting up there and then comparing myself. <laughs> how does Nicole feel about that? She knows. <laughs> I tell her my, she knows my motivation. And she's still kicking my butt by a fair amount, but I, the margin is coming down. She's got about five minutes on me at this point, but I'm bringing that back. I'm, I'm narrowing that gap. And for listeners uh, that don't live here, <laughs> Snow King is our local in-town ski hill that allows uphill travel in the winter. So a lot of the locals enjoy doing something called skinning, which is a 
method of getting up the hill on skis. It kind of looks like cross-country skiing, but you put this felt thing on the bottom of your skis called a skin and keeps you from sliding backwards and you can take it off at the top and then ski down. It's really fun. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's funny. I was going up there the other day and um, this person who was obviously from out of town sort of stops and looks at me. He's like, is that fun? (laughs) I was like, it's like, well, kind of in a weird sort of way. Yeah, Yeah, it's fun. It is in a weird sort of way. Yes. You know, it, yeah, I don't know about you, but for me, anytime still I get to move my body and don't have chest pain and I'm not gasping for air, that's fun. You know, it's like, yes, it is. The alternative is not fun. I'm going to enjoy moving yep. my body. Yeah. But how about exactly. emotionally and, and mentally? And it's, <laughs> yeah, and it sort of goes in line with um, sort of the physical aspect is, um sort of embracing the agony emotionally i'm in a pretty good spot right now my therapist down in utah fired me a couple of years ago which is good i miss talking to him but he needed to open up some room in his caseload and he's like you know you're sort of through your struggles from my perspective which is which is great but i'm in a good spot you know work is going well Family life is going well. My oldest daughter is heading off to college in the fall, which is amazing. And, you know, it's really, I sort of decided when I got a little ways out from my transplant, and, you know, this is more anecdotal than anything, it's like, I'm sort of done doing things that I don't want to do. You know, there's sort sort of this piece of like, you know what, life is short. And now in reality, we all have to do things that we don't want to do. I just do less of them. And if it is, and if it's truly something that I don't want to do, I try to figure out how to put a good spin on it, that it's going to be somehow beneficial. Mm-hmm. I like what I play. The game I play with myself is I get mm. to pay taxes. Yeah. I also get we, to pay someone you... else to help. <laughs> yeah. 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 What, Lately, what have we've you been, been calling, calling it? it? We're, we're trying to... Have, We've been trying to avoid giving ching to the man. Paying <laughs> <laughs> yes. taxes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. Final. But it's just that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, work is great. I'm more passionate about my work than ever. Kids are in a great spot. So, yeah. And you know how I sort of say it? Like, the big change is like, oh, you know, like, do you want to go on this fishing trip, for example? In the past, it might have been, oh, I need to figure out what's going on, blah, blah, blah. Now it's, yes, I want to go on that fishing trip. Yes, I want to go biking. Mm-hmm. I don't hesitate answering fun things. I don't, yeah. I try not to put other things in front of having a good time with friends and family. Mm-hmm. Bravo. And doing adventures. If you could give one piece of advice to others out there that are on the wait list for a transplant for the heart, what would it be? Wow. Well, I think that's really tough question because a lot of people who are on the wait list are on the wait list for a really long time. And my experience was really unique that it happened so quickly. So I'm not really sure that I have great advice. 
I don't have any profound wisdom because my circumstances were so different and how I came about getting my transplant. So I'm not really sure I'm the one to dole out any sort of advice in that, in that realm. Mm-hmm. I beg to differ just a hair because you were sharing yeah. about your thinking and I mean, you asked for help. You talked to the nurse as you were waiting. I mean, surely other folks who are also waiting, even if it's for longer, have the same struggles. Like you were sharing, you were waiting for tragedy in order for you to be, in order for you to be saved. There, I, I'm willing to bet 100% of the other people out there waiting have those same thoughts. Yeah. Well, I guess if you put it like that, I think what helped me is thinking about the long game. Not, I need this transplant, I need this transplant, I need this transplant. For me, it was thinking about what I'm, what I'm going to do after I have the transplant. What are my goals? How do I want to be? Because, and I know this sounds sort of strange, but in a sense, it's, it's kind of like a rebirthing. And you get the opportunity to do things different and think about how you would do things differently than you did before. And for me, sort of thinking about that long game of how I want to do things differently was really helpful to getting through the process. But then the trick is you're lucky enough to get a new organ. Is are you going to follow through with those commitments that you've made to yourself? Have you followed through on yours? I'd like to think I've followed through with many of them. Certainly not perfectly, but I think a lot of them I have. And I feel good about that. And the only person grading you on those goals is you, of course. This is myself. Correct. Mm-hmm. Can I sort of talk about one last thing? Please. Um, and this, I, I think this is in line with what we're talking about. And I was just having this conversation with my brother. I would like to see a shift sort of in the way the medical community thinks about this. Um, and this is, it sort of bothered me for some time. And, and I get it. These people are trained doctors and doctors jobs are to find something wrong with you, which to me is not a strength-based perspective. Frequently I would go in for checkups and what they would say is, well, I can't find a reason to put you in the hospital rather than this is what I think is going really well for you. These are some things you might be able to work on. The response is, I can't find anything to hospitalize you for. And from a patient perspective, that it's just doom and gloom. When you're trying to work on being your best self, that thinking doesn't allow for that. Now, it is interesting, and we both noticed, with younger doctors, you see a shift in that thinking. But sort of with the older, and it's really people my age, that they don't think that way. And... From a patient perspective, that's not helpful. And my like, cynical mind goes to what I can't think of anything to make money off of you for. Yeah, like, I don't think about it that way necessarily. Because and my dad was a was a doctor, and the way people practice medicine these days is so different because of insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And it is what it is. I'm not I'm not here to change or or tool on the system. All my doctors are on salary. They're not, they're not making commission by putting me in the hospital. But it's just, 
it's an evolution of thinking that I think really could go through the medical field that would make patients do better rather than thinking about what's wrong. Like, okay, what's actually right? Let's build off what they're doing right. It's a lot easier to build off habits than it is to change bad habits. Mm-hmm. That's that's great. I'm glad know. you shared that. And I then that's that's my soapbox. It's a worthy soapbox and it's a I've been having similar conversations with all the other heart warriors that I've been interviewing and everyone has a slightly different take on how they'd like to see the medical system shift and I I hope that this podcast can start helping move the needle to more supportive care for heart patients than what currently exists. And yeah, it's and I, I don't blame any one person. It's just the system oh. and everyone's in their own, you know, professional lanes and it's it's almost like it's too even segmented, right? So like the surgeon is done with you, oh. then they release you and that was another conversation I had in episode five with my physical therapist is they, they release you, oh. but then they don't necessarily give you the plan. And then you're kind of out in limbo land. And, and so Cassie's working to try to eliminate that through kilter physical therapy in Jackson. And, but you know, the fact that we're even able to talk about this and that we're, we're, we're cognizant of it and there's conversations happening tells me that, that it is starting to move. If people are willing to say, Hey, something's got to shift here. It has to start with yeah, conversation. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, yeah, the silos, I mean, that's, that's a whole nother hour long conversation is the silos that exist, even within mm-hmm. the same institution, really for the protection of their own departments is not helpful to good patient care either. No. Everybody, Chris, everybody this... stays in their lane and doesn't want to look at other folks. Right. Well, we will leave it at that. And probably come back to that in another episode. Chris, this has been this has been everything. It's been hard as someone who knows you to enlightening and heartwarming, pun totally intended. I just really appreciate you taking the time today to share your story. And I know it's going to help a lot of other people. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Enjoyed talking to you. And that's our episode for today. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of your day with me. If you enjoyed this podcast, I sure would appreciate if you would go to my website, theheartchamberpodcast.com and make a donation. Also, if you are a fellow heart warrior, I'd love to hear from you. Would you like to share your story on this podcast? You can either send me an email at boots at theheartchamberpodcast.com or you can go to my website and go to the contact link and leave me a message there. There's also a way to leave me a voicemail on my website. I'm so glad you joined me for today. Please be sure to come back next Tuesday to the Heart Chamber Podcast for another inspiring episode.